Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is the Point of Relation. Our guest for today's episode is Bob Delaney. Bob Delaney is an author and an advocate for post-traumatic awareness. He has worked with the military, law enforcement, firefighters, first responders, healthcare workers, and many others by providing post-traumatic awareness and education. His contributions to PTSD awareness and support to military officials and their families have been recognized with honors and proclamations for many, including President Barack Obama. He consults globally on leadership, resiliency, trauma, and self-care. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome. This is the Point of Relation podcast. My name is Thomas Hubel, and I just came off this wonderful conversation with Bob Delaney. Bob's story is really amazing. He worked as an undercover agent and then had many, many years of his own healing journey and can now speak from a very vulnerable, open, connected, emotionally resonant place uh, about his journey, his fears, his whole time, and also about what it means to live a life of covering our honesty and what's the effect on him and what is what are still the reverberation he feels and um so i found it fascinating it's uh oh, one of our conversations that we had and every time we speak we are going deeper and it reveals more of a fascinating life story so if uh, that's interesting for you so please join me and join us at the point of relation thank you so bob it's always a pleasure for me to talk to you. Um, we had our second conversation after, like our first conversation was extremely interesting, but never got recorded. <laughs> That's also interesting. We had such a deep conversation. And so today we will do our part two again and see how that emerges. But I'm very happy to be sitting here with you again. It's a pleasure to be with you. And, and, and as we started last time, I, I shared with you that um, I found out that you're a Bruce Springsteen fan as well. And being from New Jersey, uh, Bruce was someone that I've known uh, his songs for years. I would go to the Stone Pony and when he was really not as popular many, many years ago. But there's a song that I thought really resonates in our conversation and it's called it's from a song called better taste and there's a lyric that said it's a sad man my friend who's living in his own skin and can't stand the company and that song always resonated with me that line resonated with me because after i finished those three years working undercover um i was that guy that was living in the skin and couldn't stand the company and uh, so that all as a result of lying uh, for three years of my life, I lied and uh, ingratiated myself to folks. And so that lying is the conversation that you and I have had uh, often about how that influenced me and, and, and how it influences all of us. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So we, for everybody's tuning in with us for the first time, there was already part one to our conversation. We we are looking through Bob's experience to, to look at what is actually the impact that lying or dishonesty or also being undercover and creating relationships that are actually um, not real relationships, but they are real relationships. So that's what we're going to continue to talk about today. And uh, and yes, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan and I love his music and love his depth and um and as you as you quoted the line, there's so much depth in Bruce Springsteen's uh, lyrics. So I, I love that. And maybe we start with what you just brought, Bob. That, um, I'm also very curious 
because we all are social beings. Our nervous systems are wired to be social. It's painful to feel hurt relationships. It's painful to not be related and feel isolated and not belong. But you intentionally went into a community where I think you needed to build relationships. And I'm sure there was also some kind of bonding happening. I don't know, you, you need to tell us. But as I, when I allow myself to feel your situation, I, I thought, wow, it's interesting because you build deeper relationships, which also create connections. And at the same time, you also need to keep some kind of distance. And at the same time, it's also dangerous for you. So I'm wondering how you dealt with that kind of very interesting, or on the one hand also in for you and other people in that same situation, it's kind of a unique situation, how we actually bond. Do we allow ourselves to bond? Do we feel emotions? I'm sure you're also connected to families, maybe their kids and how maybe you can speak a bit about that to start with. Yeah, Thomas. So uh, I became another person for three years of my life. I, I, and just to recap, I, I, I infiltrated the Genovese and Bruno crime families of traditional organized crime, the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, whatever term we want to give to it. And um, as you said, the social uh, it, relationships that were developed, that while I knew they were bad guys, I started to know them as human beings. I knew their wives, knew their kids, uh, understood more about them as individuals, played softball with them, interacted in a human way that caused me at the conclusion of those three years to have guilt about having developed these relationships. And also probably levels of shame uh, that came to me because people were telling me that I did heroic work and I was getting accolades from one side of the fence, meaning the law enforcement and general public society. And yet those people that I ingratiated myself to would spit on the ground when they saw me walk into the courtroom. And so there was this, this conflict that was inside of me and I didn't know how to verbalize it because I couldn't say I'm sorry to the bad guys because I really wasn't sorry. It was their choice to commit the crimes. Yet I couldn't tell the people on the law enforcement side, I feel bad about doing this. So I had, to, I had to hide all those kinds of feelings for a long time. And it wasn't until I started speaking about it that it became more freeing for me. And also, um, my personality is one that lends itself towards wanting to be around people and to, 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 to ingratiate myself. But what I came to find after those three years, and as time goes on, even to this day, 40 some years later, um, I still see myself as being hypocritical at times because um, um, I'm like, do I, am I ingratiating to develop a relationship or am I ingratiating because that's the skills that I learned when I was undercover? I even doubt myself sometimes. And I think at times that people think that they're closer to me in, in a friendship than is in reality because of those skills that I developed to allow people to feel comfortable to start speaking about whatever they wish to speak to me about. And so while I always say those are blessings and curses, um, the, 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 there are a lot of positives that come out of it when it's being done for the right reasons, but then there's some internal negatives that take place. And one other part that I really... Uh, in speaking with you, it's so important to, to, to flesh this out, is that I, I always thought of the world as good and bad until I went undercover. And now I see it as good, bad, and evil. There's different levels of, um, of what takes place. So there were bad guys that I felt guilty about arresting because I knew they they were committing crimes like stealing stuff and tractor trailers. And, and I also knew that the money that they gained from those uh, criminal activities were going to help their family. So I saw what they were doing on the other side. But then there were people that I worked with that were evil. 
evil people that uh, were cold-blooded killers uh, that didn't think anything about eliminating their competition. And so that opened my eyes to not just good and bad, but there's good, bad, and evil in our world. Wow, and so I'll come back to that part in a second. The I'm I'm still curious because that's, I think, where all of us can learn. Um, on the one hand, how did you feel creating emotional relationships? Were there people that you felt closer with? And how did your emotional bonding, because I think that's a very human quality that when we spend time with people, maybe we, we also had people that you liked by how they were and their families or their kids. So... How did that play out creating relationships? Was that at all possible? Did you keep it very distant? And and if so, um, how was the experience of allowing yourself like this closer intimacy with somebody, not intimacy, but closeness, like, like friendships? And, and, and on the other hand, what do you feel needed to stay outside of those relationships like what stays outside because i think that's interesting to all of us everybody i believe who is not speaking the truth or is not honest with even in in, in very mundane uh, daily lives i think we always need to contract a bit not to speak the truth we always need to create the tension inside and I'm I'm curious how you experienced this because you were in there for three years. I mean, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's interesting how you bring that up because when, when, when as soon as you say that, it, it always triggers in my mind about how we choose to lie and we justify those lies. Like, say I'm coming to meet you, and then I've got to call you and say, hey, Thomas, I know we're supposed to meet at three o'clock, but I'm going to be ten minutes late. When in reality, I know I'm a half hour away. And it, 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 we use these, like, we're trying to make ourselves look better that I'm not that far away from you or I'm not being uh, that late. I'm going to only be 10 minutes late by my verbalizing that. But the reality is I'm going to be a half hour late. And so we do these kinds of little, like, tricks within ourselves but it's always to make ourselves look better and uh in light of what's taking place and the relationships that i developed with some of the uh, mafia guys um i'll just give you one example at the conclusion of the investigation there was a raid that took place and there were 30 people arrested in that raid the first time and um you know they, they the law enforcement agencies, the FBI, the state police gathered together like three o'clock in the morning. They started hitting houses around four, around five o'clock. They were bringing defendants into the, the main command post. And I was with Sergeant Lodier and Sergeant Lodier had a plain clothes, but he had a state police ID on the outside of his pocket. And he said to me, you want to see what's going on, meaning the fingerprinting, the pictures, shooting them off into, off into offices to see who's going to be the next informant. And... I said yes when I meant no, because now they're going to really know who I am. This is going to be the first interaction. And I took myself and put myself at parade rest. My arms behind my back, my shoulders up, uh, my, my face up. I wanted to look them in the eye and show strength. And when I got there, I was standing next to Sergeant Lardier in that pose. And a guy by the name of Ronnie Sardella, who I had stolen tractor trailers with, did dope deals with, did gun deals with, was being fingerprinted and the trooper was putting the cuffs back on him and he looked over at me and he said bobby what they pinch you for and before i could answer sergeant lardier said he's not pinched he's a trooper he's with us and the look that went between us was not anger it was disappointment he looked at me and said bobby how can you do that to us how can you do it to me i'm your friend and so that interaction created for me not to be able to pick my head up i i i i I physically put my eyes down as, as if in shame uh, because this was a guy, because it's an unwritten rule on a schoolyard. You don't tell on your friends, right? I mean, um, I remember being in fifth grade and getting caught. I was taught by the good sisters of St. Dominic Catholic school kids. And um, I got caught doing something wrong. And sister Joseph Rosier told me I was going to be punched. And before she told me the punishment, I said, sister, Jimmy DeLello is doing it too. I gave up my best friend in a heartbeat. And the ring that says the good sisters are married to God, 
It's also there to put welts on your head. She cracked me. She gave me a crack in the head. She said, you don't tell on your friends, Delaney. And so we're socialized not to do certain things. And then we ask folks like myself in law enforcement to go into that undercover lie, become friends with people, and then tell on them. And so those basics of what we're socialized to do become conflicting inside, that how we internalize that and how we justify it. And it, it, it's, a, it's an amazing dynamic, Thomas. Um, I think that we all experience a level of that. Mine just happens to be for a longer period of time, and it's packaged in a story. And yet, I think that if all of us are honest about what we uh, are share with other folks at times, we're trying to move it to the point that we make other people feel better about our about us i don't know if i'm explaining that right but it, it's it's i want you to think well of me so that you think you're got a good relationship with me and those are not true relationships those 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 are you know you speak about the attunement there's an internal what i take from when you speak about that is i always look at my internal attunement I've got to be in tune with myself before I can be attuned to someone else. Yeah, that's beautiful. Also, your in-depth description. It also touches me when you speak, because you speak about complex human emotions. You're saying, I felt shame. I needed to look down. I felt guilt. Like these are bonding, these are bonding uh, emotions that we also feel uh, towards our tribe, uh, towards people. And it's it's very important for us to learn from you about so what does it mean to set things right, to come clear, to be honest? And what we are going through, what we often, in a way, prevent from feeling, prevent ourselves from feeling, is we don't want to feel that shame. We don't want to feel that guilt. We don't want to see the disappointment. And not only see, feel the disappointment of another human being. Also in our daily lives, not just in this very kind of special circumstances you were in. But I think that that's also like your description teaches us of what are we actually, what we need to be prepared to feel in order to restore relationships where we weren't honest. And 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 to really be willing to have those emotions, go through them, digest them, feel the disappointment or the pain of another person, and uh, stay open. Otherwise, we only need to contract or retreat or shut down or disconnect ourselves. So I find this very powerful. And the other thing is, and maybe in the first conversation you talked about this already, but maybe we can circle back to that. Like, what do you think? are the long-term effects that you as a human being suffered from after you came out of this uh, three years? How did this have a long-term effect on your life? Do you feel you could integrate this pretty quickly? Do you feel it still until today that some of the after effects are still reverberating in you because that's I think also very important. We hardly hear about that, uh, you know, from people like yourself in the public sphere. Yeah, a great points because um, the the reactions that were taking place inside of me is that I I wanted to live up to the image that other people had of the work that I did, and I was. I testified before the United States Senate. I gave a briefing to Congress in the United States. Uh, I was being paraded around and, 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 and speaking all over because it was such a unique thing. We actually had our true trucking company and I was the president and the FBI and the state police are involved. And it, it was like this real life movie taking place that people wanted to hear the stories about. Not what I speak about today, about the actual nuts and bolts of how we're doing that work. And um but the conflict was that when I was in my own home, the anger levels were extremely high. Um, I was a wall puncher, like a, like a little child that didn't understand and became frustrated. I didn't know why I was angry, but I was angry. And the old sayings would come true, you know, cry over spilt milk. My reactions to little things that should be normal reactions 
were so out of whack. It wasn't in tune with what took place. Okay, yeah, milk spilled, but I would become so upset and and I became a wall puncher. And, and Thomas, I'm the kind of guy that really cannot do a lot of things in life. I don't know how to spackle. I'm the kind of guy that when the car breaks down, I open the hood and I look because I think that's what you're supposed to do, but I have no idea what I'm looking at. And so I'm not capable in those areas. And yet, if you came to my house back then, you would think I love paintings. Because when I would put my fist through the wall and then calm down, I'd go to a like a Walmart or a cheap store and, and and buy a cheap painting and hang it over it to hide that. And, and how prophetic it was because to the outside world, it looked all fine in that house. But the reality was I was hiding all of the emotions that were being expressed. And so that's where the honesty had to come. And it took me years to be able to process and to become honest with myself. And the more that I did that, and I got up in front of cops and started talking about the emotions of what I refer to as the emotions of the job, of what you see and what you experience. And then it uh, grew to firefighters and first responders and the military, now the healthcare community. Um, But it's human. It's about human beings. It's about the emotions that we feel. It's just that those who serve see what the rest of the world does not. And so they're exposed at higher levels. When I hear about cops, uh, their overreactions and their their, their violence in, in, in effecting arrest, I think of there's a lot of pent-up anger in there that I understood through the work that I did. And these are areas where we need to become 21st century in our thinking that police departments need massage therapists. They need yoga. They need meditation. They need these kinds of other outlets to help them process what they're seeing on a daily basis because they see what human beings do to other human beings. And that draws me back to the the good, the bad, the evil. They see evil. And so it impacts them, and they all too often they try to make believe it doesn't bother them. And they steal their own emotions against what they see. But then there has to be an outlet. And where is the outlet? And if it doesn't take place, now you're stealing your emotions even with the people you love. And you're not showing true emotion. And so that distance becomes i i was on yesterday with you when you were um doing the webinar yesterday and it 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 hit me like so hard when you talked about ethical restoration and i came to an understanding that that's what i've been doing for the past 40 years i've been doing ethical restoration to bring myself back to being who I truly am and having an understanding of it because my morality got changed on the street. I was making different, I was seeing things in different ways that were not part of what my upbringing was or what I understood to be good and bad. And all of those kinds of things became, I used to call it emotional roller coaster. It actually became emotional violence inside of me. And that I didn't know how to interact with yeah i I deeply understand this i mean i don't understand it as you do but from a from a deeper understanding of how we co-regulate our stress levels and our emotions with others because not only couldn't you express your true feelings in the environment that you were in you were kind of isolated also from the rest of the world. So I'm wondering how, because you needed to create a bubble around yourself that contained your true feelings. Because whenever I meet you, I meet a man that is very heartful, that is very deep, that has a lot of sensitivity. Like also, I would say like a quality of healing when I hear you speak that you transmit. So you transmit many high-level sensitivity qualities that I think are amazing given what you went through and the alchemy, how you serve 
police departments, armies, first responders, healthcare communities. I think you alchemized, you became a remedy in a way, because I truly believe when we go through something and we transform it, we become a remedy in society. And so, but maybe you can speak a little bit to that level of isolation, because I, I think that that must have been really hard for you to have these deep feelings. You the, the sensitivity isn't just there now. You were born like this. So maybe it refined itself through all the work you did and the practices. And um, and then I would love to circle back to the maybe the law enforcement and, and maybe what are the essentials that uh, from your life story, life, you know, can be transmitted there. But this isolation and not having a, the power to co-regulate with the collective intelligence and become in a way an isolated particle. And maybe you can speak with your wisdom of today about how you felt then and what you see are the consequences because I think we all can learn from your experience about how some people in our society might feel that they actually having a lot going on inside, but they are really isolated in society. And then that leads to all kinds of things they do, maybe from a, in a very different direction. But if you learn to understand from you isolation and how you felt, maybe we also develop a much higher social sensitivity to our environments. And when we see isolation, how we meet it, maybe. But maybe you start first. Yeah. Yeah. Um um, so I grew up Irish Catholic. My, my uh, mom was conceived in Ireland and born here, and my, my father's family. Is, uh, so it was always uh, a lot of storytelling of families. Um, gathering at, at grandparents' homes on Sundays was normal. To um, So I was always around a lot of cousins and a lot of family. And, you know, as time goes on, as you get a little older, it's a little bit less and less, but there was still that always that basic. And I was always a member of a team. I, I, I've been playing ball, um, basketball and baseball since I was nine years old. So it was always part of something and a team. And now going undercover, while there was another state trooper and there were three FBI agents that made up our trucking company, we all lived in different areas so that we could uh, infiltrate areas that we knew in, in socially so i was in um, hudson county new jersey so while you had some other undercovers with you you really were becoming friends with a whole another group of people a subculture that was not part of who you are and so there was a distance in that feeling at times of isolation that you were out here like a lone wolf uh trying to figure out how you can survive in a subculture that had a whole different language than, than I was used to, a whole different morality that I was used to. So all this changes, you're trying to make believe that you're part of, yet you're not. And, you know, Thomas, I used to say to folks, I was really good at doing undercover work. We're all good at doing something in life. And I would wear a recording machine where you would put a cup if you played sports where uh, in, inside the jock I, was my recording device. And I had two on-off switches in my pockets and underneath my armpits were the microphones. And I did over 300 recordings that way in, in, with, with, with mob guys. I could do the whole routine with them for a couple hours, but I get in the car and I start to drive about two miles away and I have to pull over and get out of the car and throw up. Uh, or I'd have to find the first gas station I could find because I had diarrhea. I would wake up in the middle of the night and my bed would be soaking wet um, from the sweat of when, and I didn't know what was going on inside of me. I didn't understand what I understand today. So that even isolated me more because I was afraid to tell anyone those things. I was afraid to say that because now I wouldn't look like I was able to do this work or I was not as strong as people were telling me I was. So all of these kinds of emotional kinds of things showed up physically. It, it wasn't just an emotional or psychological. There's a physiology to it. And understanding that physiology, I think, is important for all of us because I went through some uh, difficult medical things maybe about 10, 15 years ago. 
And I was sent to a doctor by the name of Guy Silva, And um, he was a uh, well-known oncologist that moved to Florida from New York. And he was like Dracula. He took blood from everywhere, man. He was taking blood from me all over the place. And I walked into his office after he had done all his testing. And he said to me, Mr. Delaney, can you tell me a time in your life that you were under prolonged periods of stress? Because I have all the markers telling me this. And I said, Doc, I have this book you can read. And I told him my story. And he said, it makes all the sense in the world. And Thomas, he explained it to me in layman's terms. He said, like exposure to the sun can show up with a cancer 30 years later. Exposures to prolonged periods of stress can show up with medical issues down the road. And so it opened my understanding to this is far more than emotional and psychological. And so when I share this with people, my hope is that that is one thing that helps people want to become more a student of trauma for their own physical well-being. This is not only emotional and psychological. We have to understand that there's medical issues that can come as well. And the more that we share these kinds of things, we normalize this conversation. Um, and, and to me, that's that's an important part of the work. Absolutely. It's beautiful how you framed it. Beautiful how you framed it. And it's... Uh... Um, I think what you what you just shared is very important for all of us, and and I think it's also circling back to the people and the communities that you work with today and bring your wisdom too. Like if we want the people that are working in law enforcement, and if we want the people that are first responders as paramedics or firefighters or army personnel or or or, or healthcare workers, like that belonged periods of stress might be part of our daily experience in those in those professions and so maybe we can talk a little bit what's your experience and how we can serve that level of our society because it looks like oh that's their thing and sometimes ask who is they mm-hmm in a society, who who, who are they? And then it seems like it's their problem. It's like the problem of the law enforcement. But I think if we have both, like the, the expertise that can be brought into law enforcement personnel, like how to maybe what you said, the meditation, mindfulness, and emotional health, ways of, of relieving the trauma that happens there very often. So that's one thing. But also the social responsibility that we want to feel safe in our societies means that every citizen has something to contribute to these populations. And so maybe we can speak a little bit about both. What did you, or what are you teaching or what are you bringing there so that, that the competence can be upgraded? And what's actually your recommendation for every one of us, like us as citizens, that we can contribute as cultural sensitivities and and, and to help those people to do their job better and more sustainably. So so maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I I think that, um, as, as we said, the need for meditation, the need for understanding, you know, like uh, Dr. Jim Gordon, I don't know if you know Dr. Jim Gordon, but Jim is from DC and uh, Jim does great work and he does a lot of dancing and a lot of creative things. And I brought Jim in with cops and firefighters. And, you know, when he starts about, we got to get up and dance and we've got to do this. And the cops are looking at him like, what are you kidding me? We're not going to do this. And then as time goes on, they start to realize they feel better after they do it. And so his his sharing at times may not be exactly what would fit into that subculture, because there's all these cultures, right? It's the culture of law enforcement, the culture of military, the culture of firefighters. Yet it it, it works. And my appeal to all folks is that these are all jobs and all professions that are going to be filled. We want to fill them with the highest talented people, not get to the point where we are now where the pool of applicants is small. 
We want a large, we want people to, to aspire to these positions. So we make it an honorable, noble profession. That serves all of us well. That serves us well that you're not worried that your kid is out there at 11 o'clock at night and being stopped by a police officer who maybe doesn't have the skills and doesn't have the talent, yet they had to fill that position. So we have to go and make these into the noble professions. I made my living at, at professional sports. I, I was in law enforcement. I do this parallel work. Uh, but for 30 years, I was in the National Basketball Association, as you know, as a referee. But I still say to this day, years from now, people are going to come back and look at us and say, they paid athletes what? And they paid teachers what? There's something disconnected here. We're, we're we're paying athletes and we're paying, and I'm not saying they shouldn't get a good, but the numbers are so out of whack with what the professions are of people who are serving in noble ways in society. And this disconnect is, is pushing us in different ways. So my hope is that we're able to make a swing. It took place um, when I was a young man, the Vietnam War was, was in full swing. And I remember how uh, United States soldiers were vilified and uh, disrespected. And that pendulum has swung. There's an honoring of those who serve now. There, there's understanding that they are doing good work. Um, I think that this will take place in our society as well, but it has to have a conversation on both sides of the fence. Uh, bridges are built from both sides. So it can't just be one side comes most of the way. It, we all have to get and, and bring this together. And, and I think it's um, an area that is so needed in the conversation that police officers are scared to death too. And so the overreactions are coming. These are overreactions to situations that should normally be handled in a very simple way. I, I don't remember taking my gun out all that often in my early days in uniform as a trooper. I was taught by senior men that this and this and this are the things that are going to calm situations. Speak to people. Treat folks in the way that you would want to be treated. And just because you have a badge and a uniform does not mean you have the right to be disrespectful or demeaning to someone. I was told I would be a professional law enforcement officer by a senior trooper that, that guided me. He said, you'll know when you're a pro, when after you arrest someone or give them a ticket, they say thank you. They're not saying thank you for what you did. They're saying thank you for how you did it. And that is what we have to train and, and understand and, and speak about more. It's not only about being this strong arm, it's about calming the waters and allowing people dignity when even they have to be arrested. And that's very beautiful. And it speaks also to how much actually attunement and relational capacities are not just soft skills, but are prime skills like we have to be more attuned and maybe also like and maybe that's happening I, i'm not fully aware of that but uh, like some kind of trauma screening of one's own developmental trauma that makes that more likely or less likely to be relationally attuned and come to this kind of high level of professionality and the kind of inclusiveness and also self-regulation of officers or or any kind of first responders, I think is very, very important. And as you said- and Thomas, to your point there, it is taking place, but it's taking place in small increments. And uh -huh. so we're not moving the bar as, as quickly as possible. And also it becomes kind of tri tribal within the law enforcement community because it becomes us versus them. And that is a, when I hear that, it is such a bad statement. Because there's no them, there's only us. <laughs> and, exactly. and until we come to that realization and have that fully in our hearts when we're doing whatever we do in our world, that is what's going to cause for these changes to come place, take mm -hmm. place.
Yeah, yeah, I had a once an incredible conversation in one of our course programs with a soldier that uh, served in, in Vietnam and then experienced that isolation and how that actually added and strengthened the trauma in him and later on he became a very skilled trauma expert. But the, that, that kind of situation of being marginalized in one's own community after that kind of traumatic event uh, and we as citizens not taking ownership of our participation in the war, it's not just them going there. It's not just them. I think that's a very strong message, how we how we are not only, I said this also yesterday, like how we are not just part of an ecosystem. We are the ecosystem. There is no day there that we are all like interconnected with everybody and i think the more we feel that again the less we say such sentences and we are much more supportive and i think that that's why i love the work that you do because you work in the in the communities or professions that are the firewall of our society including the medical system the healthcare stuff that is the firewall of the society that absorbs a lot of trauma Mm -hmm. I think we need, once we understand how systemically relevant that is and how much more support needs to go into these professions in order for us to stay safer and healthier, this part of our population needs to be served much more with support because there's a shock absorber of the trauma that police officers see, first responders see, like medical stuff sees that many other people never see. I mean, I worked as a paramedic also, as you know, for nine years, and I know what I saw in this time is so different that like regular people never see and or hardly ever see. So, and and I think that that level of support and the work that you bring and bring that to the public attention also is so important um, for the societal health uh, overall. You think about, we, as a paramedic, you went to where trauma is constantly. You were constantly going to trauma. So to think that those who serve are not going to be exposed to trauma, we are all susceptible. It's a human condition. Yet those who serve are in the higher risk group because they go more. And then I came to the realization that paramedics, first responders, law enforcement, military, firefighters, go to trauma healthcare community has trauma walk in the front door and the okay. trauma comes to them so it, it and they get hit with the emotional shrapnel of the trauma and um that to me is another area because the pain that you see in other people why you're there and then you have to make believe and put this persona on because you can't show your own emotion you have to steal your emotions against what you would normally feel in order to do your job. A homicide detective has to not see that as a person, but as an object that had been violated and now do their job. Yet, you're still experiencing that. That's inside of you. Talking about having a release for that, that is not weakness. That's strength. And until we change that kind of mindset in these kinds of uh, professions, that's where the rub starts to come. That's where the apathy, the isolation, the maladaptive behaviors of over-drinking or drug abuse of other addictions start to show up because you're trying to deaden the pain. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and you said it beautifully, like what we need to support, because even the term clinical distance or staying objective, like how can you as a human being not feel what you feel only when you contract? So in order to keep a distance, you need to distance yourself from yourself in order to anesthetize that, that part of yourself. And there is no other way. So emotional maturity is actually the only way to do these kind of jobs uh, sustainably because that means that I'm able to stay spacious and related in the pain, but I'm not so affected and flooded by the pain that I'm not anymore functional. 
And that's a very different understanding than, oh, we keep a clinical distance, yeah, but how do you do that? Mm-hmm. You do that through contracting and distancing yourself from yourself. Because when I look at you, Bob lives in my central nervous system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are deep in my nervous system. The Bob that I see lives very close to me. So I can distance myself from you only if I create a distance in myself. And and I think that's very important because other, and then it's also clearer why, and many first responders carry some sort of trauma from their childhoods, from their ancestors, from the collectives that they come from. So it's not that we start, you know, very integrated, all of us, we all carry our packages. So the... And and I why I'm saying this is also because I think your work really brings to the public attention that we as citizens and as society need a different social awareness of these parts of like these professions in our society need a different social awareness. And I think if we all create that, if we all are mindful of first responders or, you know, law enforcement being so exposed to trauma, there is a different holding environment, just that difference of awareness and the difference of approach and the, and how many judgments and distance and authority projections we hold. And if we can just work on that systemically, then the entire system will balance itself. So I think that's a very a big calling uh, to everybody. Like, that's a very deep awareness process for all of us to strengthen. One of the things that I've learned to uh, do is that by telling my story and being honest with telling my story, that I allow those in the audience to connect the dots to their own story versus speaking and giving information or directing or speaking this way it's all internal. And so often I'll have folks come up to me and say, I felt like you were speaking directly to me when you told this part of your story. And I said, because it's not my story, it's our story. It's a story of humanity. And that is when we share with each other. Uh, You and I, in, in having conversations, we give permission to each other to tell our stories. And then we validate our feelings so that we don't feel those that feeling that I have is only my feeling. No, it's someone else has that same feeling. There's, there's a comfort in that. There's a comfort in knowing that I'm not the only one and, and that these can be worked through and that there is, you know, I I think I've told you this before, but the second book I wrote is called surviving the shadows, a journey of hope. It's a post-traumatic stress. And the reason I chose that title is that I believe we all have shadows in life. And yet I tell folks, never be afraid of a shadow because in order for a shadow to exist, there has to be light nearby. And it is our responsibility to ourselves and to each other to get to that light. Yeah, that's very beautiful. And I and I also see you with all your talks and all your the internal process that you went through. You actually become part of a collective restoration process. So through you re-owning your own honesty about all the time that you experienced uh, in this job. I think it also, your story becomes a collective, you know, touches the collective story, as you said, of everybody. And that's a beautiful example how what we go through and if we consciously integrate it, we become like also a collective remedy in what we do. We become a psychoactive substance. That's why people come up to you and say, you, it's like you talk to me, which is true because you filled your own process with awareness and light instead of suppressing it and, and drinking alcohol or suppressing it and doing something else. So you, I think that's really beautiful, but it's so lovely. I could, every time we meet. You, you bring these out in me. You, you help me understand ethical restoration. And in speaking yesterday, you helped me understand, it struck me of things that I have been doing. And so these conversations that you and I have are are so helpful to me, but also the resourced, resilient relationships. So I I made what you said about uh, the resources with it. I said it's the three R's, resourced, (laughs) resilient relationships. 
and how important they are. Because back to the family, one of my cousins said to me after I had worked undercover that I was gone for three years. I was totally submerged in, in this in this world. She said to me, Christmas was never the same because you weren't there. And you you realize the ripple effect of this. I was seeing it only through my own eyes. And yet I was seeing and hearing from my cousins about how it impacted them. And then I came to the realization also that my friends wanted me to be that same guy I was when I went away. And then when I came back, I was different, but they didn't want me to be different. They wanted me to be that same guy. And because that's who they knew. And they, this experience caused for me to change. And so I was trying to fit in and be more like them and, and not be myself. And so it's all these, these are all parts of the isolation that you speak about. Exactly, exactly. Beautiful. Well, that's so amazing. I think uh, it's also great what you just said as, a, as an awareness practice that we feel the parts of our ecosystem that we don't directly see, but are affected by the way we move. I think that's also a beautiful awareness practice that you just said. And it's always so lovely to talk to you, Bob. I always feel very close. I feel very resonant. I love your big heart. And uh, also the deep um, emotional openness that I feel through your own restoration and how your own path is restoring your own your own honesty in yourself and, and it becomes a public service. So this is so, so beautiful how you turn this time into a healing movement. So thank you. I hope we will have many more conversations. It's always, always interesting. We're always revealing more in this resonance that we build. And um, yeah, so thank you. I think for today, uh, I see our time. It's great. And then maybe we, we have another conversation and deepen them. I'm sure we will. Um, to you and to everyone that's listening, stay healthy, stay safe, take care of one another, and take care of you too. Mm. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.